Let's talk about imperialism. Interventionary. My name is Reagan. My name is Jesse. And we are coming to you from Washington, D.C., birthplace of waiting 45 minutes for three pupusas. I, there's so many pupusa places, though, and there's, like, I know Ursilia's is really good. I took my house there for the first time, like, a week ago. Um, what did they say? What did they uh, think? I believe everyone enjoyed their pupusas. Um, As they should. As all people with taste buds do. Oh, yeah. Um, my, I actually don't like a lot of them, but I think Ursilias are incredible. Um, I the, firmly yeah. believe they are the best in the city. Just like if there's a line, though, there's like another going to be another place a block away. Just go there. <laughs> um, I know that uh, Chris thinks that the best pupusas are not Ursilias. <laughs> Ursilias. He thinks that they're at Elizabeth's Pupuseria, which is down by Red Derby. And his rationale is that they don't taste as good as the pupusas at Ercilia's, but you get them basically as soon as you order. Like, the wait time is, like, basically nothing. Mm. And so his cost benefit says that (laughs) that makes that the better pupuseria. Yeah, I'm impatient. I get it. Um. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially because it's right across from Red Derby. So if you're a socialist and you're looking for pupusas across from Red Derby, you're probably just drunk. You want them now. Why? uh, I'm curious why you called uh, Red Derby uh, going down to Red Uh, Derby. Oh, uh, because that's like a regional aphorism. Aphorism. I just say going down to to anywhere regardless of what direction it's in. (laughs) Yeah, I, I I recognize that it's probably to the north of me, but to me, to me, every everywhere is going down there. Do you remember where we left off with our last Cuba episode? It's okay if you don't. When I talked to my mom this morning, uh, she had no memory that there was a Cuba episode at all, so. I'm glad to see that we are really imparting knowledge on our listeners. <laughs> She remembered some of the individual stories when I'd be like, do you remember this? And she'd be like, oh, yeah, that was fun. Be like, okay. Anyway, um, so I remember that after the Spanish-American War ended with one of the many, many treaties of Paris, the United States didn't get to colonize Cuba. But they did get to do all of the things that you get to do if you're colonizing a country that mattered to the United States. So they got to control Cuban foreign policy. They got to have a large swath of land at Guantanamo Bay, which we still maintain. And they got to operate militarily there. And it 
got to did it get to have special trading rights with cuba yes they did um yeah i i would usually refer to it as like they they didn't get to annex cuba mm-hmm. um but we very much colonized them yes um yes it just legally we couldn't uh take the whole thing although as mentioned we did certainly take parts um, yeah and all of the southerners were very sad because they oh actually it doesn't matter to them anymore because this is after the civil war but the southerners at one point wanted to colonize cuba to make it a slave state yes um yeah there's definitely different political concerns at this point yeah because slavery uh, has been formally abolished yes de jure slavery Um, has been abolished now they're uh I, i would guess that they they didn't really have crop competition with what was growing in Cuba, so they probably didn't care too much. But there were certainly people in the U.S. who, uh, one way or another, were very interested in that relationship. And I actually want to talk about that economic relationship some here um, to start. Yeah, so the U.S. hadn't been able to annex Cuba because of the Teller Amendment. The, which was an amendment that barred the U.S. from annexing Cuba uh, as part of the war. As we mentioned last time, there were some people in the U.S. who did actually want Cuban independence, which is part of the reason for the Teller Amendment. Uh, but most of the bill's success can be attributed to fears of blacks and Catholics, as well as domestic sugar producers. Um, and that included Senator Teller himself, who was probably actually somewhat anti-imperialist, um, but a far bigger concern to him was the fledgling Colorado sugar beet industry, which was the dominant Colorado industry for the first half of the 20th century. Was he the senator from Colorado? Uh, yes, he was. Then it makes sense why he would care particularly about what's happening in Colorado. Yep. He had that uh, didn't want competition for Colorado sugar beets. So while we couldn't annex it because of the Teller Amendment, we were obviously going to be exerting control over it it was going to be a colony not least because there were lots of afro-cubans and from a u.s perspective they certainly couldn't be trusted with self-governance the u.s right now is basically undergoing uh oh my god what's the term the redemption southern redemption basically uh where they are violently basically putting down uh all of the gains made during the reconstruction era uh the brief period of reconstruction where black people started to get political power in southern states um and right now uh the southern states and southern whites are basically engaged in a mass campaign of terror uh terrorism and murder against black americans to make sure that they do not have their uh, right to franchise or pretty much any other rights. And the like very clear, like fear and disgust that Americans and American elites have towards black power um, is something that is highly relevant to our relationship with Cuba over the next 50 years. Um, And certainly through this whole episode, and what's the time span that this episode is taking place in? 
So we're going to start basically uh, right after the war ends, so 1902, uh, 1901, 1902, and it's going to run through about 19... The main narrative is going to end around 1920, and then I'll probably briefly mention a thing or two beyond that. Okay, so this is all happening right around the same time as the last episode, simultaneously with what's going on in Honduras. Yeah, most of it's going to be focused on uh, the very, like, around the turn of the century, so a little bit earlier. But it's mostly an overlap, yes. Wonderful. Thank you for helping me conceptualize the timeline. Continue. No problem. Um, Yeah, so anyway, after that peace treaty, a U.S. general was made governor of Cuba, and we established that colonial economic relationship. Boo! Um, So, can you think of, like, a... You know, what? what is a colonial economic relationship to you? Like, do you, can you think of, like, any staples in terms of, like, imports, exports, and just general economic policy? Yeah, so I know that in some colonial relationships, trading is restricted so that the colony can only trade with the mother country. Honestly, I can't think of anything besides that. <laughs> yeah, those, like, those basically represent a lot of the, the key mechanisms of policy that are used to could to control the economic relationship um the sort of classic colonial relationship would be that cheap raw goods that are labor intensive are shipped exclusively to the metropole so that's the the colonial power um, and once those goods are refined, they're exported back to the colony, which, as mentioned, is usually allowed to trade exclusively or virtually exclusively with the, the mother country. Um, so basically, it means that the metropole's industries get cheap raw goods that usually uh, require labor that people in the metropole don't want to do. <laughs> and uh, like, say, working on sugar plantations. And then the colonial market is forced to import the expensive, like, finished goods as well. Wow. This reminds me a lot of what was going on with Puerto Rico around this exact same time where the United States was having them produce a whole bunch of sugar. And we got all those quotes from people living through it saying that they make us produce cheap goods and buy them back more expensive and ruined all of the local industry and replaced it with cash crop agriculture and plantations. Yep. There's definitely this kind of development basically is cripples any like industrial development in the colony and, you know, provides a nice boost with extra markets and cheaper goods for the the metropole industries. And that can be reinforced with unequal tariffs on import and export. Uh, or on import to the, each place, um, or for even specific goods, which is what we did here. So for the U.S. to achieve these purposes, we cut tariffs for American goods that were going to Cuba um, to basically encourage the establishment of those trading interests and the import market, but maintain tariffs on goods going the other way so that Cuban industries basically couldn't get into the American market. And while this, you know, standard maneuvering was helpful, U.S. businesses were really, like, you know, chomping on the bit to 
chomping at the bit <laughs> to start gobbling up new land and, you know, just straight up buy out the Cuban industries. Um, technically, this uh, new administration, not even really administration, just an American governor, wasn't allowed to give land to U.S. companies under U.S. law, um, including the amendments that we've talked about. Uh, but one U.S. capitalist kind of thought of a workaround, which is that they were allowing Spanish laws to still be on the books for now. So basically, when needed, you just pick the uh, pick a law from the Spanish set uh, that would allow you to make the business deal. Anyway, there was rapid purchase of Cuban land and industry by American investors, particularly in the sugar industry, but also in copper mining and just about every other industry you can imagine. By 1902, 40%, uh, so this is, you know, basically a year after the war ends, uh, 40% of the country's sugar production was controlled by Americans. Uh, 1905, nearly 10% of Cuba's total land is Americans. Uh, at the same year, 60% of the rural land was owned by Americans, so most of the farmland. And another 15% was owned by Spaniards. Um, so the vast majority of the land is not controlled by cubans already and this was on the low end of foreign control in a cuban industry uh, as per official like an official u.s memo talking about how most industries had between like 85 and 95 percent foreign control um, and almost always dominated by not almost always always dominated by americans um in order to get cheap labor for this because the island's population had been uh, devastated by the wars. These companies brought in 750,000 workers over the next decade, uh, which is to a country that has that had a million people before the independence, the most recent independence war. Um, so this is basically a shit ton of seasonal contract workers generally. Who literally are basically, during their contracts, doubling the Cuban population. My goodness. Yeah, the the whole concept of, like, immigrants taking jobs is rarely true. Like, on any, like, macro scale, immigrants also need goods and services and thus foster jobs or foster the creation of jobs. But uh, in this specific case, with seasonal workers, it's just purely people being brought there to compete, to bring down the price of wages. And then with them not being from Cuba, those wages, which are the tiniest portion of the profits being made by these foreign companies already, uh, the wages then leave the Cuban economy. So it is, for most people, a terrible time. I'll also mention, so where do you think, in terms of, like, the plantation land would be? Do you have any guess on where, which part of Cuba that would, that would be? I'm going to guess the eastern half, because from what I remember of our last episode, that was the economically disadvantaged side during the last period of colonization by spain the resources kind of ended up on the west half right 
Yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, most of land, the rural land uh, was in the east. Um, this was also where most of the Afro-Cubans lived, um, in part because that's where they were usually brought to, um, to work the plantations there. This uh, mass economic disenfranchisement of Afro-Cubans, these Afro-Cubans would eventually lead one of the many revolts against the Cuban government in this period. Love it. I I want to see some revolts already. I'm 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 already excited to hear don't, the revolts. No? Don't get your hopes up for it. Oh, there aren't going to be some good revolts. The Cuban government There are going to be revolts, but it's hard to call them good ones. Oh, I'm definitely an active listener now though. I'm I've I've got I've got the people I'm rooting for. So far it's a good story. All right. Um very meta. Yeah. So, once Americans had control of native industries, they lobbied for and received tariff reductions for those sugar exports back to the US. Um so basically now that the imbalance was like achieved and they'd purchased the Cuban industries, which granted they were able to do more because of they were just already much richer than because of the colonial economic relationship being able to build up an imbalance in this case. They lobbied for and received tariff reductions for you for sugar exports back to the US. So basically while the rest of the goods were still expensive to send to the U.S. Uh, that sugar, now that it was owned by Americans, could be exported cheaply. Mm. Uh, and this ensured dominance over the Cuban and American sugar industries and markets, and eventually the world sugar industry. The sugar companies didn't limit their influence to sugar. Uh, they also built up and then controlled the railroads that were being laid out. And they and other industries, like uh, the the American mining interests would start also to build up, you know, telephone lines and all of this infrastructure that they privately held for their own benefit. Um, they would also come to see Cubans as uh, basically ungrateful, uh, ungrateful brown people who weren't properly thanking them for all of this beautiful infrastructure they had given them. Um, well, that goes back to Teddy Roosevelt saying that they were all useless and didn't do anything when they won most of the war for him. Yeah. It's a pretty classic uh, colonial mindset. Certainly very emblematic of most British uh, colonialism. And just in general, it's... You know, people think they're the good guys, uh, even when they're committing genocide. <laughs> so yeah, the Cubans, meanwhile, wanted, you know, their own government. That They had just fought a war for that. Um, they, were, they were really hoping to get that. So while the U.S. was certainly not going to end their military occupation yet, they did allow for elections. First at the local level in June 1900. And then for a constituent assembly to draft a constitution in September 1900. 
the Americans insisted on literacy and property requirements to vote, and in general were not shy about wanting to work with only white elite Cubans, um, which was, of course, much like these, you know, poll taxes and literacy tests were meant to get rid of black Americans. It was also uh, in the U.S. It was an, they used those same tools in Cuba. The American governor, uh, Governor Wood, at the time of the election, uh, was worried about a, quote, second Haiti if Af- Afro-Cubans and the illiterate masses achieved any political power. Uh, we haven't talked much about the Haitian Revolution in this podcast, um, but it ended in 1804, a hundred years ago. To just give you a sense of like how terrified the U.S. is of black power at this point, um, and at all points. Fun fact: in college, I was fucking this Haitian guy, and he talked with me about the Haitian Revolution. I would say at least every other date that we went on. And his belief was that the reason why the Haitians were able to win the Haitian Revolution was because of voodoo. I'm pretty sure that was, yeah, that was extremely common among the Haitian revolutionaries. Yeah, basically his rationale was that none of them were afraid to die because they were such firm believers in the religion yeah. that they were able to just basically risk it all because they were going to get freedom one way or another, which I think is incredibly badass. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's uh, up until really like the machine guns in like the late 1800s, morale was the primary driver in who won military conflicts down to the individual battle. Um, and religious zealotry of all sorts was very effective for maintaining uh, unit morale. Amazing. So, continue. Everyone is terrified that people are going to kick all of the white people out without even asking them for permission. No, it's not. They're not even really afraid of that, to be honest. They are, like, it's not... They don't take it that far, like, with what they're picturing. It seems to literally just be like, no, there will be black people in control of the government. And, ew, gross. Uh, and, you know. So, it's basically... They have an even less rational fear. <laughs> yeah, it's... The arguments are basically the exact same as if you, like, go back and, like, look at any cartoons or writings for how... um the black Southern state governments were described in the U S in the like 1880s Um, being hyper corrupt, being like fools, illiterate um, simultaneously too naive to like be able to do politics properly, but like conniving and like trying to like destroy all white people. Um, it's and it's also very heavily the word rape gets used a lot it's very clearly tying black men also to um the concept of rape as much as possible it's it's very it's not about haiti in any way it's it's about this raw fear and hatred of 
black people, quite frankly. Uh, even with these restrictions, though, the, the first set of elections, the, the local elections, resulted in a majority of people winning who were definitively pro-independence. Uh, and even worse, of course, there were black people, uh, again, usually uh, referred to as mambis. Uh, they were Afro-Cuban independence fighters. And just to give you a sense of like their prevalence within the Afro-Cuban population, it's estimated that somewhere between like 90 and 95% of Afro-Cubans were like mambi fighters, um, including women in non-combat roles. So this is basically the entire Afro-Cuban population. Um, anyway, during the Constituent Assembly election period, Governor Wood went on a trip around Cuba, warning political leaders that they needed to, quote, send the best men and avoid making Cuba a second Haiti. He and the American papers are really on the second Haiti thing, um, which they probably were saying about the U.S. itself at that point. He also openly said that the U.S. wouldn't withdraw the military if they didn't like the elected assembly. Wood, however, did not get his wish. The CA was definitively pro-independence and had four, four black people. Uh, and so, of course, Wood and the U.S. lost their shit. While the U.S. is screaming and figuring out what their reaction is going to be. Uh, the Constituent Assembly worked to get the government set up, and in February of 1901 had finished a constitution with the first presidential election to take place at the end of the year. Uh, but back in the U.S., you know, this election, this betrayal by the Cubans uh, was not going to be taken lying down. And the response came in the 1901 Army Appropriations Bill, which is the bill that gets passed each year the year in the title changes um and it's where they get their funding from congress this bill had the Platt amendment that we've talked about a little bit in the past uh attached and this amendment is going to define not just cuba and american relations but also the cuban government for the next 25 or so or actually sorry for the next 35 years about the amendment is a list of demands and also a threat towards the cuban government should they not accept the demands so these are the eight items of the platt amendment verbatim uh except for where it's not verbatim i you'll you'll probably figure it out so the preamble for the recognition of the independence of the people of cuba demanding the government of Spain relinquish its authority and government in the island of Cuba and withdraw its land and naval forces from Cuba and Cuban waters, and directing the President of the United States to use the land and naval forces of the United States to carry these resolutions into effect. The President is hereby authorized to leave the government and control of the island of Cuba to its people, so soon as a government shall have been established in said island, under a constitution which either as part thereof or in an ordinance appended thereto, shall define the future relations of the United States with Cuba. So what's that preamble? So they're claiming that they're recognizing Cuban independence, mm -hmm. but not really. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, the preamble's mostly saying, like, you know, a bunch of stuff about how we're saying, you know, we're going to free the Cuban people and we're telling and the amendment is, you know, directed 
towards the president and it's telling the president that uh you are to use uh the u.s military to put out the rest of the articles in this uh, amendment to effect um so first article first of these terms that the government of Cuba shall never enter into treaty or other compact with any foreign power or powers which will impair or tend to impair the independence of Cuba, nor in any manner authorize or permit any foreign power or powers to obtain by colonization or for military or naval purposes or otherwise lodgment in or control over any portion of said island. So it's saying that nobody is allowed to colonize Cuba, which is funny and ironic because that's what the U.S. is doing. Yes. So, Article 2, stuff about debt. Remember, this is verbatim, except for where it's not. We're not going to talk about that. It's basically saying, again, that the president has to make sure that Cuba um, can't take on too much debt. Article 3, that the government of Cuba consents that the United States may exercise the right to intervene for the preservation of Cuban independence, the maintenance of a government adequate for the protection of life, property, and individual liberty, yada, yada, yada. This is the one that we is most important to talk about. Exactly, because this is the one that says we can do interventions. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, like if we talk about like for the maintenance of of a government adequate to the protection of life, property, and individual liberty can mean anything, as we're well aware. Yeah, because I'm thinking, you know, what if they elect a president who doesn't believe in a right to property? <laughs> Certainly that, or just if, more commonly, if the U.S., uh, if they do something that a U.S. corporation with property on the island doesn't like and they say they're being threatened... That is uh, definitely the kind of thing that makes the U.S. do interventions. Yep. It, it's basically like just, yeah, it's a it's a free card to have the U.S. send in the military to overthrow the government at any point that it wants. And this is a this is an amendment, again, telling the president that the president basically can't give the Cuban people the, a govern their own government until the Cuban people agree to put this in their constitution. Article 4 is that all acts of the United States and Cuba during its military occupancy thereof are ratified and validated, and all lawful rights acquired thereunder shall be maintained and protected. So the U.S. can do whatever it wants in Cuba? No, this one is, so, um, it's saying that all the acts of the U.S. and Cuba during the military occupancy. So basically everything that's been done under the military governments, the Cuban government has to ratify and validate. Oh, okay. So so they can't be prosecuted for war crimes. Um, yeep. Yes, that's not really prosecution what, for war can crimes. Can I get an example? Really can I get an example of, of the kind of things that would that this would do? Sure. So basically, let's say that the military government signed a contract with a company to build railroads. And the Cuban oh. government didn't want to abide by that contract and isn't the one who signed that contract. I understand. The, everything that the government appointed by the U.S. did stays in place. Exactly. 
I was like, everything the U.S. did is fine. <laughs> um, I mean, basically, like, <laughs> yes. But this is the only thing that they're worried about. Everything else, yes. they're like, no one's ever been... They're, they haven't even killed, uh, you know, one-tenth of Luzon yet. Uh, yeah, they, I guess maybe they haven't really started doing the hardcore war crimes that we now know and and yeah. Plus, associate with the United States. They probably wouldn't be called war crimes. It would just be called, you know, killing people who had it coming. <laughs> there was no... The concept of war crimes was, like, barely a thing. I guess there had been... Uh, one of the first conventions or whatever, but it was still completely ignored. Thank you. What's the next one? What's the yeah. next provision? Okay. Um, five, uh, keep fighting mosquito-borne diseases. Um, four, quote, thereby assuring protection to the people and commerce of Cuba, as well as to the commerce of the southern ports of the United States and the people residing therein. Well, I I support the anti-mosquito sentiment because we here at Interventionary are pro-anti-mosquito action. Um, I don't like that the, 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 the U.S. Is, is doing colonialism and just because you, you try and fight malaria doesn't mean you're stopping colonialism and seems like you're doing it on behalf of colonialism. Oh, yeah. That's why I like like this one and why i mentioned it was uh like keep fighting mosquitoes like yeah cool we're on it um but that but that even in basically an unrelated point in a document where they're talking about how much they're trying to uh keep the people of cuba free and independent they can't help but mention how this is for american commerce like it's why it's not even like saying the quiet part loud. It's based actually no. It's it's pretty it's much putting the quiet part in law. Like yeah, instead of just leaving it out. Like what? It's the equivalent of Donald Trump going like, "We're banning the Muslims on Twitter." Um, <laughs> hey, but you know what? That can't be used as evidence in front of the Supreme Court, so it didn't happen. And. The they had to put it in the law to make sure everyone knew that it happened. The Supreme Court could throw out their reports. Yes, Article Six of this document that's for the recognition of the independence of the people of Cuba is that the Isle of Pines, which is now called the Isle of Youth post Revolution, uh, Castro Revolution, shall be omitted from the proposed constitutional boundaries of Cuba. The title thereto being left to future adjustment by treaty. So. Straight up saying, uh, it's not saying we will annex this island. We can't do that. But it's saying you're not allowed to include it as part of your your government, as part of your nation. And uh, we're going to have to talk about this in a future treaty. Um, pretty, pretty clear sign that it's not theirs anymore. I mean, literally, it's telling them that their constitution can't acknowledge it as theirs. Article 7 that to enable the United States to maintain the independence of Cuba and to protect the people thereof, as well as for its own defense, the government of Cuba will sell or lease to the United States lands necessary for coaling or naval stations at certain specified ports to be agreed upon with the President of the United States. I really like, can you reread the very first part of that, please? That to enable the United States to maintain the independence of Cuba. 
and to protect the people thereof, as well as for its own defense, because we have to say the quiet part loud, the government of Cuba will sell our lease to the United States. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then we get to we get to put our military on the island, and it's to keep the island independent. Yes, this is basically where we're saying you will be selling us Guantanamo and other bases in the future. Mm-hmm. Or not selling, sorry, leasing us. Bullshit. It's all bullshit. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that at least just a very little bit in the future when that treaty comes up soon. Uh, Article 8, that by way of future assurance, the government of Cuba will embody the foregoing provisions in a permanent treaty with the United States. Uh, this one's setting up the permanent treaty with the United States that Cuba's got to be in. Exactly. So this amendment is already all about how, like, the Cubans have to put all of this literally in their constitution. And now it's saying that we also want a separate treaty saying this, too. They want their receipts. Just really locking it down. Yeah, exactly. So the Cuban Constituent Assembly, we'll go back to the narrative now, thanks for playing with me, understood what was up, obviously. It was stated out loud. (laughs) And added the amendment to their constitution, Um, although plenty of the Assembly still voted against it, despite the fact that that basically would mean war and the island was already devastated by like 30 years of war and a fuck ton of colonization right before that yeah for sure uh and the u.s then began troop withdrawal and this plot amendment and and these terms are basically the base of u.s cuban relations until 1934 so in december the first presidential election was held And the first president was Tomas Estrada Palma, who took office in May 1902. Estrada Palma had worked with Jose Marti as a fellow exile in New York, had lived in New York so long, in fact, that he was actually an American citizen, um, who taught schools in a town that now has one of the largest outlet malls in the world. Uh, I used to truly hate going shopping there uh, with my family when I was a kid. Um, Evidently, it gets... A lot of tourists from Japan and China taking day trips from New York City. Anyway, all of this is where Estrada Palma is hanging out in the New York suburbs, teaching people. Um, And also doing exile things, so a lot of like lobbying in New York. After Marty died, uh, which we talked about last episode, incredible writer and poet, not so great soldier. Uh, Estrada Palma took over as leader of the Cuban Revolutionary Party. After the war ended, it was in this role that he dissolved the Liberation, or Mambi Army, uh, which was the bulk of black and rural power within the Revolutionary Coalition, and he also gave more power to the uh, white, urban, wealthy assembly. Ew! Yeah, um, which is certainly, as the Mambis would point out many times, Fully in contrast with, for instance, Marty's stated agenda. Um, And in fact, probably was not really what Estrada Palma wanted either. There is some evidence that he did believe, along with Marty, in full racial equality. So it may have been him attempting to be pragmatic in regards to U.S. relations, since as a U.S. citizen, longtime resident, and... Uh, during the Cuban Independence War, a Cuban lobbyist in D.C., he would have been very aware of how much the U.S. political class despised and feared black political power. 
and these moves very much helped him basically be considered like a comfortable choice by the Americans. Um, as the excellent history of the Cuban Revolution podcast, which highly recommend listening to if you want details about this or any period in modern Cuban history, Estrada Palma became seen as basically the ideal uh, leader because he was sort of a moderate revolutionary. That's um, a contradictory phrase. <laughs> it is, but it's also kind of true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, yeah, people people are many things. This man is an oxymoron. Continue. Yep. So, uh, two political parties, the Liberal and Conservative Party, had been sort of set up in Cuba, and uh, both backed Estrada Palma. The U.S. support was also thrown behind him. Uh, and so the opposing candidate, who was another uh, Cuban general, dropped out of the race in protest. In this new, very new, independent nation, first, you know, the start of the Republic, tensions rose very quickly, uh, both because of the neo-colonial status and the fact that this government was obviously basically a puppet government and also because the u.s and white cubans were very insistent on the oppression and abuse of afro-cubans on the former front estrada palma and the government agreed to lease guantanamo bay uh, and a second port in the northwest of the u.s in 1903 uh, as much as this didn't does suck it seems to be considered one of like estrada palma's like greatest achievements like in terms of diplomacy, because the U.S. went into it wanting four or five naval bases and came out agreeing to at most two. Which, considering there was basically zero leverage, uh, is a pretty impressive diplomatic coup. The lease for Guantanamo Bay was set at $2,000 a year. So it's pretty clearly just, you know, cover for the fact that we're basically annexing it. Trash. Um do you have any guesses as to the current rate of the lease that we, we pay to Cuba each year for Guantanamo Bay? What was the original rate? $2,000 a year. I'm going to guess $5 million? Uh, We send to Cuba $4,000 a year for Guantanamo Bay. The Cuban government has also refused to accept the check since the Cuban Revolution, except for one time right at the start, which Castro says was because of an error in the accounting department. <laughs> I mean, relatable. Communists are not very good at math, from what I can tell. Except for Einstein. It, it was literally, yeah. It was also, like, basically, like, 1959, like, right at the, like, right as the revolution was finally winning and taking over, like, fully winning. Um, so, you know, it was a little chaotic. Yeah, I, I don't blame them for but getting yeah, they, mixed they up They still don't the accept room. the checks. <laughs> well, that's, um, it's still a bullshit amount. $4,000. Exactly. I mean, that's I why. I feel like. <laughs> the government has probably given me personally more than that. And I'm just a person. And also I hate yeah. it. It's an interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting piece of political theater that the United States does to this day to pretend that we haven't just, you know, annexed a part of Cuba. And it's like part of like a political theater that like everyone goes along with. Like we lease political, we lease Guantanamo Bay. And it's like, wait, who are we leasing it from? The cuban republic that we established and uh 
threatened with invasion unless they gave us it. <laughs> I think it's a nice, it's a good uh, move not to accept the checks. It shows just how illegitimate it is. Not that, you know, it's that's paid attention to. Exactly. So, what next? Oh, do you want me to continue? Yes. All right. Um, so, the same year in 1903, the government's the Cuban government signed that treaty with the U.S. that was required in the terms of the Platt Agreement. Platt Agreement. Platt Amendment. Uh, that basically reiterated all those articles in it. Um, and then we come to 1904, where there's the next set of congressional elections. And these elections were a complete farce. The parties had very quickly become political machines um, that were offering jobs to loyal supporters in a country where jobs were super scarce and wages were barely worth getting at all. This fostered intense party loyalty. The parties really weren't at this point. There was no ideological real differences. It was basically just parties controlled by white elites um, who were trying to get as much money as they could out of the government and give it to as many friends as they could. Uh, The Liberal Party, in part because of the not being the currently dominant power and so not having as many corrupt strings to pull, took pretty intense losses and they refused to show up to Congress rather than let it have a quorum. So already... (laughs) Uh, the Cuban Congress is completely gridlocked and unable to do anything. Three years, two years into the establishment of this country. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, Estrada Palma came up for re-election in 1905, and right before his election, the conservatives did a gigantic purge of liberals from all government positions, like all the way down literally to street cleaners. Um, so basically, if you're thinking of this as like, as you should have like a um, a political machine like you'd see in American cities at this time uh, by eliminating all of the political supporters for their jobs. One, you obviously cut the money that they have available to do things. And two, it opens up a bunch of jobs that you can then give to your supporters and make them your supporters. Um, this, of course, like mass firings, um, led to mass firings in a country where there's basically no internal economic industries at all, led to large-scale protests and violence with the now partisan cops who are literally, you know, all political appointees, even shooting a liberal political leader dead in the street and then saying he was going to blow up that building. Basically, like, violence got out of control. Um, And I I also want to say that, again, liberal and conservative really doesn't refer to, like, any major... It's not about politics at all. It's about, like, who is giving me this job? Because that is who I will vote for. (laughs) Um, Anyway, the results of the 1905 election were Estrada Palma getting 96.51% of the vote. Uh, zero votes going to his opponents, of which there were none, and the rest being blank or invalid votes. The overall election results led to his party taking 12 of 12 seats in the Senate, 
31 of 32 seats in the House, with the one other seat going to an independent candidate. And of course, him winning, quote unquote, supposedly 96.51% of the vote. So do you have any thoughts on the legitimacy of, of this election? Like, it's just a sham election. Yeah, Like, yeah, that's yeah. just a sham election. <laughs> Voter suppression, just making up results. Um, mm-hmm. And for reasons that are, you know, difficult to comprehend, the Liberal Party began a revolt in 1906. <laughs> Estrada Palma requested U.S. support, basically asked them to invoke the Platt Amendment, which... Uh, remains in Cuba to this day a deeply unpopular move. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, And the Roosevelt uh, administration officials, led by former Philippine governor, current Secretary of War, and future president and Supreme Court Justice, Taft, what was his name? William Taft? William Taft! Yep. He came in to broker a solution. Uh, Obviously, the U.S. hated the liberals, who generally tended to be that's basically where all black political support was so they didn't like them even if there weren't a ton of them actually in power yeah yeah they they were not they were not fans of that kind of thing anyway they hated the liberals but the conservatives had so obviously rigged the entire country's political system that taft basically said all right fuck look we'll invalidate the elections the current administration, you guys are going to resign. The rebels will stop fighting and we'll, we'll get full amnesty and we'll, we'll do this whole thing again. <laughs> um, which is honestly about as reasonable as you can get, I feel like, in this circumstance. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's like reasonable, but it's within the context of colonizing things, which is never really reasonable, so. Yeah. And causing this, like, the destruction of the economic system that leads to political corruption basically being the only way for some people to survive. Um, And, of course, the people at the top of that are going to use it to get very, very rich and then use that money to further illegitimately acquire power. Like, we created a system where corruption was the only possible outcome for the survival of some of many people, and so an incredibly corrupt system grew. Anyway, without the U.S. on his side, Estrada Palma decided to resign, uh, and the whole conservative government resigned with him. So there was literally now no government. Uh, this obviously would have left a vacuum for the liberals to step into, but... Again, there was a lot of black power within that group, and so the U.S. was like, no, you're not going to do that. Uh, so af- the day after Estrada Palma resigned, Taft named himself the governor of Cuba under the terms of this new 1903 treaty and began the second occupation of Cuba. Ew! And I'm just going to read Taft's note, uh, his, his little letter here, to the people of Cuba. The failure of the Cuban Congress to act on the irrevocable resignation of the President of the Republic of Cuba, or to elect a successor, leaves this country without a government at a time when great disorder prevails, and requires that, pursuant to a request of President Palma, the necessary steps be taken in the name and by the authority of the President of the United States to restore order, protect life and property in the island of Cuba and islands and keys adjacent thereto, and for this purpose to establish here therein a provisional government. 
The provisional government hereby established by direction in the name of the President of the United States will be maintained long enough to restore order and peace and public confidence, and then to hold such hold such elections as may be necessary to determine those persons upon whom the permanent government of the Republic should be devolved. Yada, yada, yada. So uh, we're going to hold this until, until you have a government that we mm-hmm. trust. This occupation would last three years. Um, the liberals were originally thrilled with uh, Taft's compromise. They thought they were going to get new supervised elections, so they offered no resistance and immediately like turned over arms to the U.S. Marines that landed on the island, uh, which was called by the president the Army of Cuban Pacification. But instead of this, they got two and a half years of a War Department official running the country, Charles Magoon. He did mostly let the liberals do their thing, but they weren't actually allowed to form a government um, until after the 1908 sugar harvest was complete. It seems like they wanted to make sure that, you know, that harvest got out okay. And then he was like, all right, you can have a government again. And after... Jose Miguel Gomez won in 1908 and took office in 1909. The U.S. troops left. Magoon was evidently considered mostly pretty not corrupt, but he did still give a few more contracts to U.S. companies on his way out. This new incoming government was probably more corrupt than the prior government. Um, How? I mean, it basically just this like party system. There's more time to fully entrench it in every aspect of Cuban politics. It's also where the Cuban lottery starts, which is going to become a dominant source of. Basically, it's going to be a huge deal in Cuba for the next 50 years um, until Castro again. There's a lot of very fun details. Fun being uh complicated word here uh over on the history of the cuban revolution podcast i would highly recommend like listening to episodes for like all of the details about it goes into great detail about just how that era of cuban government functions Um, but just know that this whole government is basically a way to funnel money to people to give jobs to people uh jobs aka to funnel money to people um, in return for their political support while accumulating as much on top for yourself and also while suppressing black people as much as possible. Most of this money being collected through basically kickbacks and other stuff by U.S. companies. So it, it really is corruption built on foreign wealth. Um, and it's basically that foreign wealth is then trickled down by Cuban political leaders through the political parties, which creates like intense rivalry between those parties and a massive amount of like violence and instability because switching parties means a whole bunch of people are about to lose their jobs, which is pretty much their only livelihood and only way of achieving that livelihood. So this second occupation of Cuba is the most famous U.S. intervention in Cuban politics of the era, but it's not the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, most U.S. interference in the Cuban government was just through threatening Gomez and other political leaders 
not to engage in any projects that we didn't like or that uh, an American company didn't like. So, like, what would happen is, like, a new proposal for something would be heard about by a U.S. plantation owner who wouldn't like it, and he would talk to a U.S. State Department official who would then talk to Gomez and say, if you do this, we think it's going to cause unrest, and therefore we will need to take action, Um, a.k.a. sending in the military and overthrowing you. And the government literally couldn't even drain a swamp without U.S. threatening military action, because if you drain the swamp, then there's more farmland. That farmland could compete with American businesses. So it basically led to a government that was unable to do anything except trickle down this money that they were getting from U.S. companies down to their supporters. There were two more military interventions. One happened in an incident that would start in 1908, when many of the Mambi veterans who were fed up with the racism of the Cuban government formed a new party, El Partido Independiente de Color. How'd I do? Pretty close. Okay. What, what should it be? El Partido Independiente de Color, the Independent Party of Color. Yes. They would become known as the PIC. So, yeah, they were Mambi veterans. Uh, Their land in the East had been taking the brunt of U.S. purchases. The labor conditions were horrific. The liberals that they voted for sold them out, uh, basically taking their votes and doing nothing for them, perhaps because they knew the Americans wouldn't let them, but they still were absolutely selling them out time and time again. No uh, relationship to modern liberals and uh, in the U.S. And... Even the few black politicians that they had generally would basically do nothing for them. Um, they were also excluded from all of the patronage jobs because the white elite class refused to associate with them or hire them for them. So these jobs that weren't competing with like the 750,000 you know, seasonal laborers coming in were completely inaccessible to them. This is also known as uh, it's been called the first explicitly black political party in the Western Hemisphere. Hell yeah. Yep. So as a black and poor people's party, it was, of course, immediately despised by the political establishment. Wow, no one's shocked. They, after they did some protests and were starting to get a little bit of traction, but uh, Gomez ordered the party disbanded and... Legal cover was provided through the Marua Law, which was a law that outlawed political parties based on race. Which is a great, great example of how supposed race neutrality or blindness is used as a cudgel for white supremacy against black people. Just one one of many uh, examples of it. It's like, no, 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 we don't see color. You can't have a black political party. Mm -hmm. There's no white political party. Yeah, yeah, that's racist against white people. (laughs) Who control the entire government. Exactly, Um, the truly oppressed people who control everything except for the space you just made. Yes. It may be made up of all whites, but it's not explicitly a white political party. Yeah. It just is that way, you know? That's just what happened. That's it. That's it's purely coincidental. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, in 1912, this frustration and 
like inability to do anything to support or help themselves uh, boiled over. They were locked out of the electoral arena. They actually tried to use basically the liberals playbook against them and they appealed to the u.s asking them to invoke the platt amendment to ensure their individual liberties as stated in article three uh as you might imagine the u.s of course declined to take any action to help the black independence party um and so they turned to rebellion as is usual with black action against white supremacy it was framed in the white media as the real racism and seriously those almost those exact words were used in spanish in the cuban paper el dia they described the the pic and the the movement as a racist uprising an uprising of blacks in other words an enormous danger such uprisings are motivated by hatred and their purpose is negative perverse they are only conceived by something as black as hatred. Nice pun there. Uh, they do not try to win, but to hurt, to destroy, to harm, and they do not have any purpose. They follow the natural bent of all armed people without aim and driven by atavistic, brutal instincts and passions. They devote themselves to robbery, pillage, murder, and rape. These are, in all parts and latitudes of the world, the characteristics of race struggles. I mean, honestly... With very slight changes, that is basically what most con American conservatives and a not insufficient chunk of liberals would say now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I heard him say it on fucking Fox yeah. and CNN last summer when we were protesting. So Gomez asked the U.S. for help putting down this rebellion. And of course, they were very happy to send a few hundred Marines uh, these Marines worked with the Cubans to brutally repress the rebels, killing a few thousand Afro-Cubans and uh, making sure to protect the sugarcane plantations, the mines, the railroads, and the telephone lines owned by U.S. companies and labored upon by Afro-Cubans in terrible conditions, as well as immigrants in terrible conditions. I think we need to stop doing this show, Jesse. I'm so depressed. Every single really? week, it's the same shit. No, I, I don't actually think we should stop. But well, I'm just I knew that, listening but... to what you're saying. And I'm hearing you talk about government, once again, choosing that property is valued over specific human lives. And I'm just like thinking back to the other interventions that we've talked about and we're only on episode 11 and the pattern is already frustratingly there and the more we move into the 20th century and get closer to the present like we're just gonna see this pattern continue and continue and continue and the more it continues the more frustrating it gets because the more evidence you have from previous times it's happened the that is what well, the yeah, U.S. But, does. Yeah, but we think this is good. <sighs> I hate the U.S. government, man. If you look up stuff on Platt now, there's precious little information about him. Um, but the stuff that exists is like often like referring to the Platt Amendment as his greatest accomplishment because it's famous and a thing from U.S. history. As if it's an accomplishment worth celebrating. 
Uh, that's I'm thinking in particular of like a piece from like some Connecticut magazine from where he had his house. We can talk about Platt more later in U.S. politics. Yeah, he sounds like um, trash, though. I would love to. I would love to hear more about him at some point. Yeah. He was also a huge political power um, in the Senate, but uh, so yeah, this repression of the PIC was the last major intervention by the U.S. during this era of Cuban politics. Uh, The final one we're just going to talk about briefly was another Liberal Party revolt, again led by Gomez after the re-election of a conservative president, uh, who was also, I believe, an American citizen, an Ivy League grad, and a former Cuban-American sugar corporation manager, which was, of course, an American sugar company. This time, the election was in 1916, As you can tell, there's a theme here, basically. Whenever a new party wins an election, or really whenever someone wins an election, the other party tries incredibly hard and usually requests the U.S. come and intervene because otherwise they will all lose all of their jobs. Um, So by having the Platt Amendment also, like, ironically, I suppose, even though Actually, no, it is ironic because the U.S. really didn't want to destabilize Cuba this bad. Like, all of the American presidents dealing with this seem mostly pretty annoyed that they have to deal with it. Um, You reap what you sow, fucking William Howard Taft. But yeah, you put yourself in a position where you basically have an economy that can only function basically on corruption. And people can only survive in corruption. And then you give them the ability to... Uh, if they revolt, the U.S. intervenes and they might get a new election. So they might be able to save their jobs if they start violently fighting against the government enough that they can call in the U- they can get the U.S. called in. Yeah. Um, it, we're also creating this dependency, basically, that creates endless chaos. Anyway, this uh, revolt started in 1916. However, the start of World War I in 1917, as well as the U.S. not really supporting the liberals at all this time, what with being busy dealing with what will soon be World War I, uh, led the head liberals to end the revolt pretty quickly. You know, people it's get like, oh, it's unpatriotic during wartime, yada yada. Um, <laughs> in the East, however, local commanders were leading forces of impoverished peasants in raids of plantations. Because for the actual people who the liberals were supposedly working for, they were still in desperate situations. These U.S. companies being raided uh, requested military assistance. And although the actual liberal revolt was well over, the liberals' elites had basically long ago said, it's fine. On the terms of needing help with this revolt... U.S. forces were sent in to the island. The Marines were explicitly to protect for the sugar harvest of 1918, which the sugar companies were very worried was going to be disrupted. Um, And of course, that food was going to be very profitable as Cuban sugar was basically the source of British and French sugar during World War I. So exports were going crazy. As resistance uh, shifted from banditry in the country, uh, thanks to the troops kind of breaking that up, to strikes by workers in the cities, 
uh, troop presence shifted there as well. And for the next four years, U.S. Marines patrolled Cuban cities to break up strikes and other worker protests, literally basically becoming military police to ensure a docile force of workers. And they would only leave in 1922. And by leave, I mean return to Guantanamo. (laughs) Ew. Yep. So economic instability and inequality, as well as white supremacy, would continue to cause massive unrest and lead to further revolts in Cuba. And of course, additional U.S. involvement in the future. But we're going to leave Cuba here until the 1950s, actually, where some folks like Che and Fidel emerge. And we'll then, of course, catch you up on the years in between, particularly how a U.S.-backed dictatorship emerged that directly led to the Cuban Revolution. And speaking of that revolution, I want to just plug again, easily my favorite source for this episode, which is the History of the Cuban Revolution podcast. I have insane imposter syndrome right now from talking about the subject at all, given how good that is. Uh, So if you're interested in all the juicy details about Cuban history and U.S.-Cuban relations, definitely give it a listen. And I guess I can also uh, mention one thing, just with a little note on the U.S. politics of the era, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Go for it. I want to hear. So Platt of the Amendment was one of four longtime Senate Republicans who were very creatively called the Big Four or the Senate Four who dominated the Senate in the 1890s and early 1900s, which, now that I'm thinking about it, it amuses me, because he would have been one of those people who Thomas Reed truly despised. He hated basically all of the senators, saw them as, like, useless aristocrats, and so I enjoy that Thomas Reed would have hated these guys and literally would have been bad. they would have been bad-mouthing each other in the press. Anyway, Platt did his damnest... He made his mark doing his best to fight the Sherman Antitrust Act, as well as any other progressive legislation that might prevent businesses from abusing their workers and customers. Ew. I hate it. There was a biography that came out of him in 1910 called An Old-Fashioned Senator, Orville H. Platt of Connecticut, The Story of a Life Unselfishly Devoted to the Public Service. He was, of course, a huge piece of shit. Another amendment that we've talked about in the past, actually in the Panama episode, was the Spooner Amendment. Do you remember that one? I do not remember anything about that. (laughs) So the Spooner Amendment was basically the amendment by which we uh, bought out the French Canal Company. Oh, okay. I remember that now. I forgot that it was called the Spooner. Yes. Spooner was another one of the big four. In fact, a lot of the major amendments of that time are basically named after these four dudes in the Senate. Just a fun fact. I don't have anything else about that. Good to know um, that I can maintain my stance against boys clubs. Well, I think then we should probably head back. Back? What am I saying? Yeah, let's head back. Let's head back to our respective lives. I don't know leave the podcast zone these goldfish aren't going to eat themselves exactly we've been stuck here at the henry cabot lodge podcasting all day and we need to go home (laughs) um thank you so much for listening thanks 
especially to Hengli Yu for our fantastic intro music. Please make sure that you rate and review us, tell all of your friends, follow us on Twitter, we're at Interventionary, and I don't know, email eat us. Eat the rich. Yeah, yeah, eat the rich. Um, bye. Bye. Somewhere between prayer and revolution Between Jesus and Huey P. Newton That's where you find Johnny Five shoot shooting Water guns at the audience while you're scooting Your gluteus max due to the fact that he's tooting On the horn gonna warn you that I'm rooting For the other team in the culture war So I stab the beast belly as the vulture snores Yo, yo, let it blow with convulsive force Till walls fall off their false supports Till Jericho's aircraft carriers alter course And all brave young Americans are called to shore Cause we've already lost the war They keep waging Splattering the streets And battles that keep raging Bloody in each page And the story that we're studying Each day the same Just the names keep changing Saying the same things over again Repeating the same slogans We don't know where we've been We've been all over the globe On our government funds Leaving man, woman, and child Dead, bloody, and numb Saying the same things over again Repeating the same slogans We don't know where we've been We've been overthrowing leaders With legitimate views Democratically elected But we didn't how many times can the line divide? How many wars do uphold your pride? These fears uncontrolled just swallow the tide of blood in the streets while the people die. I'ma keep on trying, long as suffering is multiplying. And why not? These souls getting tossed and left out. I rob my bags, brought enough to help lift your cross. As long as you help with mine, the process of healing will take some time. To see the pain in your face is the same as mine. It's not a game or a race, but the stakes is high. We maintain our mistakes for the sake of science. As long as it takes, I'll say it one more time. As long as it takes, I'll say it one more time. As long as it takes, I'll say it one more time. Saying the same things over again. Repeating the same slogans, we don't know where we've been. We've been all over the globe on our government funds, leaving man, woman, and child dead, bloody and numb. Saying the same things over again. Repeating the same slogans, we don't know where we've been. We've been overthrowing leaders with legitimate views. Democratically elected, but we didn't approve. U.S. is not us, and us is not we, and we are not satisfied. We're tired of the same thing, and we're ready to make change. Are we ready to make change? We want money for healthcare and public welfare. Primo Mia and Leonard Peltier. Human needs, not corporate greed. Drop the debt and legalize weed. We say yes. To grassroots organization No to neoliberal globalization Bring the troops back to the USA And shut down Guantanamo Bay Who let him overthrow Yakobo Arbenz Who let him overthrow Mohammed Mossadegh Who let him assassinate Salvador Allende I didn't let him but they did it anyway Who let him overthrow Kwame Nkrumah Who let him overthrow Aristide Who let him assassinate Oscar Romero I didn't let them, but they did it indeed But don't let them assassinate Hugo Chavez Don't let them assassinate Evo Morales And bring back Martin, Malcolm, Medgar, Hampton, Jordan, Courtney, Cheney Saying the same things over again